welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Just two days, millions of people around the globe will mark the 500th anniversary of a landmark moment in church history. Indeed, a landmark moment, uh, one of significance, a turning point in Western history. Some will mark this day with celebration and with jubilation, with much gratitude for that which was accomplished. There will be speeches and sermons expounding the greatness of key players, expounding the, uh, the great implications of that courageous act in face of hostility. Others will mark this day with less enthusiasm. There will be speeches tracing the negative impact that this moment and the subsequent tsunami of change that has followed has uh, had upon our world. Claims will be made on both sides. Some will be overstated. For some, it will be remembered as the great liberation, while others will uh, remember it as the great loss. Many words will be spoken regarding this historic occasion, and many of them will be insightful and thought-provoking, the result of necessary and valid reflection on these truly significant, uh, this truly significant moment in time. It was August, uh, sorry, August, October. Are we in October? It is. It's already the year. Oh, wow. It's already the end of October. So it was October the 31st, 1517. An Augustinian monk named Martin Luther was perplexed and disturbed uh, by what he deemed to be an absolute betrayal of the gospel by the church who were meant to proclaim the good news. For Luther, the final straw had come with the arrival of a Dominican monk named Johann Tetzel. Tetzel had been on a campaign tour selling indulgences, the money of which would be used to fund the great building project of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. At this time, the church taught that uh, through the purchasing of indulgences, one could minimize their time in purgatory, the place one would go to work off their sins after death they would wait before they uh, could possibly move on to heaven. So this papal push for funds provoked Luther to protest. He compiled his complaints, writing them in the form of 95 theses, or arguments, detailing some of the ways in which the church had departed from the good news and uh, become utterly out of sync with the character of God. So with his complaint in hand, uh, he ventured to the door of the Wittenberg Castle, the door acted as a community notice board, a kind of uh, public social media news feed, the place people would go to know what was going on. And here at the door, Luther nailed his 95 theses, his public protest that he hoped would spark debate and ultimately lead to repentance and change from those in the top at Ro in Rome, those who shaped Christian life and doctrine. Luther's 95 theses provoked, uh, theses provoked uh, some outrage, and it proved to spark. It proved to be the spark that set Europe alight. The forest was tinder dry. It contained an enormous amount of fuel, just waiting for ignition. Luther's act was that moment at which the match was thrown into the brushwood. Why did Luther's actions prove so momentous? Why did Luther's call for reform receive such traction? How had Europe become so tinder dry, so ready for change, so welcoming of Luther's ideas? And importantly for this evening, 
What caused such an embrace of Luther's ideas regarding the authority of Scripture and such a pronounced rejection of the status quo? Before we explore these questions and in particular revisit this uh, idea of the authority of Scripture, let us glance back at what we have done so far, what we have set out to do over the last three weeks. Over the last past uh, few Sundays, as we have inched closer and closer to the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, we have been exploring the drama and the dynamics of this remarkable time in the life of the church. You may be asking, what relevance does this piece of history have to do with me? Why are we even talking about this? Well, we have looked into the Reformation in order to become increasingly aware of our story, of how this story of ours has shaped us, how it has shaped Christianity, and in fact, how it has shaped the world. And within this task that, we have been able, uh, that we've been doing, we have gleaned lessons and insights and wisdom that if we heed it, will help us navigate our way forward. We uh, learn by looking back. And as I said last week, uh, the, the author of Deuteronomy makes it pretty clear that remembering leads to life, forgetting leads to death. So this evening, I want to continue this task of remembering together. So first up, Don introduced us to some key players. We met Martin Luther. That's not to be confused with Martin Luther King. I know that there's a little few question marks on that one. Uh, we met John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, we, three men who really changed the world through their actions. Don then focused on two key ideas of the Reformation, two key affirmations, that of sola scriptura and that of sola fide, that is by scripture alone and by faith alone. And last week, we had a debate. That's right. We sought to explore the question, is the, is the, is the Reformation best described as a tragedy or a necessity? And we had two friends of mine come, uh, Mr. Necessity over here and Mrs. Tragedy, and they brought a pretty, pretty convincing arguments, uh, pretty convincing arguments that left us asking the question, in our day and time, how do we become a community of love who reflects the character of God into the world? So we have learned this far, that by the end of the 15th century, sorry, by the end, yeah, by the end of the 15th century, the church was in a mess. Corruption is running rampant at the highest levels of church leadership. The papal throne is being bought and sold to the highest bidder. Concubines are commonplace in the papal palace. Christian worship is more akin to superstition than a celebration of the goodness of God in Christ Jesus. The church, integrated into every aspect of society, controls politics, religion, and dictates a climate of fear. We have a church failing in its vocation, failing in its calling to reflect the character of God into the world. We have also learned so far that Luther and his fellow reformers sought to turn things upside down by teaching that individuals are actually made right with God, not through the sacramental system of the church, but rather by grace through faith alone. Their teaching hinged upon the scriptures and how they were interpreted and in turn, what authority the scriptures had. So therefore, the added to this grace alone, faith alone, the reformers argued that scripture alone, sola scriptura, had to happen. Scripture is the final authority on matters of faith and doctrine, according to the reformers. So this issue of biblical authority is something I had hoped to squeeze into last week's debate. But if we'd been here debating that, we would have been here all night. Um, 
I'd hope to squeeze it into last week's debate because, as Don mentioned a couple of weeks back, sola scripture, the Bible alone, is, is, is kind of the essence. It's kind of the foundational affirmation, the bedrock affirmation upon which all the, the other reform, the, teacher, the teachings of the reformers sits. Now, I realize we have already looked at sola scriptura. We've already looked at this idea a couple of weeks back. However, I want to take just a closer look, another look, a different angle on things tonight. I want to because the world is full of people claiming to speak for God. Our social media feeds are overloaded with opinions and arguments that apparently are based on the Bible. We have multitudes of conflicting messages yelling at us, each claiming to be words from God. So I want for us to take some time to dig in a bit deeper, dig into this idea of sola scriptura, to ask a few questions of it. And I want us to unpack this central claim of the Reformation um, in the hope that by doing so, we will see the need again to recover the heart of what the Reformers were on about. So, we won't understand the weight and the significance of such a claim, this claim sola scriptura, unless we see it in light of the story. So let's trace what was happening in that day and in that time. Why was Europe so ready to embrace these reforming ideas regarding the authority of Scripture? Well, the times were dark. Religion and politics were hopelessly confused. The institutional church was a mess. Christendom had produced a world of discontent. However, at this time, the tide was turning. Change was in the air. Discontent had propelled some thinkers towards a recovery of antiquity, a return to the classical writings of the Greek world. In 1453, Constantinople fell to the Turks. Islam had captured what was then the Rome of the East, the eastern center of Christianity. Some multitudes of Greek-speaking exiles and refugees fled west to escape persecution. And as they poured into, the Western, uh, into Western Europe, they brought with them their Greek language. They brought with them their Greek ideas. They brought with them their Greek knowledge. For the despondent and the discontent under the Roman church, the knowledge and grandeur of antiquity was seen as a great uh, thing. A great, it had great appeal. It was a welcome breath of fresh air. Italian artists, writers, and thinkers had already begun to explore and engage and rediscover uh, classical Greek world. Painters and sculptors and architects drew from the ancient world to produce works of art that embodied a stinging critique of the status quo that was under the Roman church. So this was a time of recovery, a time of rediscovery. Engagement with the classical literature gave rise to a movement of new scholarship that sought to learn for the sake of learning, not simply for the sake of the church. Artists experimented with non-Christian themes. They celebrated classical myths. This was a little bit revolutionary. The Renaissance, this is what we're talking about, this rebirth of culture tilled the soil of Europe. And amidst this rising tide, there was one thing of particular importance to us this evening, and that is the rediscovery of writings from the early church. This engagement with ancient texts uncovered some realities concerning the Bible. The Vulgate, which is the Latin text that the church built its doctrine upon, the one that they regarded as the authority, 
was actually proved to have some pretty serious textual errors. This discovery of early writings began to call into question the legitimacy of some of the official teachings of the church, teachings that now appeared to be based on misinterpretations of the original Greek texts. So in these days, the official correct interpretation of scriptures was sanctioned by the church, and the Pope's interpretation was considered infallible, without error. Scripture itself was not viewed as the supreme authority on matters of faith. Rome insisted that the Bible was to be read through the lens of the tradition. And so this is the official church's position on authority. It says that sacred scripture and sacred tradition made up a single sacred deposit of the word of God, which is entrusted to the church. The teaching office is not independent, independent of this, since all that it proposes for belief as being divinely revealed is derived from a single deposit of faith. Tradition was of equal weight to the Bible in matters of doctrine and in matters of practice. And unfortunately, at this point in time, tradition had become uh, pretty reordered by a corrupted church. So in addition to this, the institutional church also forcefully resisted attempts to translate the Bible into the language of the people. The Bible was held captive by the church, by a church that appeared to be more intent on defending the sale of indulgences than allowing the Bible to inform and instruct in the way of Christ. More intent on placing authority in tradition than really digging in and finding out what the scriptures actually had to say. So, no wonder there was an appetite for change. Corrupt church practice was sanctioned by the word of God. So it is against this backdrop this backdrop of change and doubt and disenfranchisement, that we must understand the cry, sola scriptura, scripture alone. It is in response to these distortions and the superstition that accompanied papal interpretation that the reformers sought to make a correction by championing a return to scripture as the primary and critical source for Christian theology. As historian Jonathan Hill notes, as far as Luther was concerned, there was only one source for theology, the Bible. Human reason and church tradition are acceptable tools as long as they are, part of, they are put in service of the Bible. They do not provide any alternative source of theological knowledge or practice. Luther critiqued the church for their vast collection of writings that made up the tradition writings from the early fathers, from the councils, from various teachers through the centuries. These, Luther believed, were given undue attention and had led the church to neglect the word of God. Luther notes, they have many books and large libraries, but the Bible lies forgotten in the dust under the bench. He believed that scripture should judge the church, not the other way around. It behooves us, Luther comments, to let the prophets and the apostles stand at the professor's lectern while we down below at their feet listen to what they say. The reformers insisted that in matters of faith and doctrine and practice, scripture was the highest authority. Then came tradition. They sought to liberate the scripture from captivity so that the word of God could freely speak to believers without the distortive weight of false interpretations and inventions added by the church under the papacy over the centuries. Scripture alone. Scripture alone is the final arbiter. Scripture alone is the supreme authority, not Rome. 
not the accumulated tradition, not the infallible interpretation of the Pope. With such doctrine as purgatory and the sale of indulgences, it's easy to see why sola scriptura was welcomed by the masses. So with this backdrop, Renaissance-inspired change and a corrupt church who were firmly set on the idea that tradition and scripture should be considered equally authoritative. Sola Scriptura sounds like a victorious, fantastic liberation, an affirmation that would find no resistance among us. However, 500 years on, and I'm not too sure, 500 years don't read so positively, and pro propagating this idea of scripture alone, the reformers sowed seeds that would bear unexpected fruit. In a very short space of time, Sola Scriptura had got out of hand. There were side effects. It had authorized independence. It had unintentionally sanctioned radical religious individualism. Within a few short years, Luther himself was trying to rein things in, attempting to um, emphasize the importance of authorized religious leadership, such as himself, in matters of biblical interpretation. But whose reading was to count? The radical reformers, such as the Anabaptists, wanted to push Sola Scripture to its limits by rejecting anything in the tradition that could not be uh, attested to from Scripture. Things like infant baptism were thrown out. The Bible had become open to highly subjective, individualistic interpretations. Untethered from the tradition that had once kept safeguarded it, Scripture could now be used to say almost anything. And in this new situation of interpretive pluralism, the church began to fragment over irreconcilable differences of reading. As Brad Gregory notes, in the hands of the radical reformers, sola scriptura produced not even rough agreement on matters of doctrine, but an open-ended welter of competing and incompatible interpretations. Wittenberg, we have a problem. Kevin Van Hooser rightly asked this question, did the Reformation set loose interpretive anarchy upon the world? The 500 years of interpretive conflict lead us to a pretty crucial question. Can we really have the Bible alone? I can hear it. so many people going, he's not asking that question, is he? It's a serious question. Can we really have the Bible alone. For isn't it true that we bring our presuppositions to our reading? Do we not read the text through our own stories, through our own experiences, through our own cultural lenses that we wear? And if this is the case, do we not require a guide to help us to make sense of this ancient text? See, we're all shaped by cultural forces. We swim in waters of which we know, don't, do not know how infested they are. We absorb surrounding culture in ways we cannot perceive. Is it then realistic to think that we can accurately interpret the Bible for ourselves, cut adrift from a historic interpretive community? With no tradition to guide our interpretation, no help to understand these words that were written, uh, written for us but not to us, how can we be sure that we are interpreting them correctly? We only need to look on the news or look at Facebook or probably turn to the person next to you to realize that there are wildly different 
interpretations of the Bible. There are wildly different conclusions about the nature of God, about the person of Jesus, about what it is to be human. Just think more recently about how people have brought their interpretation of Scripture to bear upon certain election results. Not too sure if you guys see Facebook, but there's all sorts of ideas out there. And then think just a little bit further back about the certain other election across the other side of the rather large sea to our... that way. There's different opinions all over the place. Evangelical theologian Charles Pinnock says the following. Scripture may be primer for theology, but it is not solar because tradition plays a role in interpretation. What Pinnock is trying to get at, what he's really aiming for here, is the idea that we cannot be free from tradition. Free, we cannot be free of the story that we're living in. And because we ourselves are storied creatures, our lives are made up of narratives, we cannot come to the biblical text alone. We have a tradition of one sort or another. Devin Rose, an apologist for Catholicism, concludes that if sola scriptura is true, then Protestants should be united in their interpretation of the Bible. Protestants are not united in their biblical interpretation, therefore, sola scriptura is not true. The logic is pretty good. And I can see why he would conclude the things that he has concluded, especially when we turn our attention to how sola scriptura is manifest in popular culture, how it is realized in what we might call bumper sticker theology. Bumper sticker theology has understood sola scriptura like this. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Sounds so full of faith. Sounds like we are putting the word of God at the top. Sounds like we are being people of the word. And I know the intent is so. But God says it, I believe it, that settles it, is somewhat problematic. Because God says a lot of things in the Bible. And just because God said it and we believe it doesn't really mean that it settles it. If it settled it, um, we would agree on things. And we would understand what we're meant to do about how long uh, the hair on the sides of our faces is meant to be. And most of you will have walked far too many steps today because it's a Sabbath. And promiscuous women among us will have been stoned to death. And women will have been silent in the church because God said it. So the Bible alone can say whatever we want it to say because we can pluck obscure verses out of context and make statements about God without any consideration of who and what the whole narrative of Scripture conveys. We can make the Bible say anything that completely contradicts the writer's intention. And the early church would have called this absurd. So can we really have scripture alone and where does this leave us or we reject sola scriptura no just by the way in case you're really worried 
But my aim in painting a picture of the background context, my aim in telling you about the social and religious and political milieu in which the reformers' affirmation arose, was to give a sense of the magnificence of the achievements of Sola Scriptura, the magnificence of what has been won for us. I hoped as we looked at it, that the historic ba- as we looked at that historic background, we might get a glimpse of what the intent of the informers really was. What I believe the intent uh, was it has now been buried under the contention and the carnage of the subsequent years. So the issue was authority. Where does the final religious authority lie? And the intent of the reformers was to claim that Scripture alone, Scripture alone is the final authority, the supreme authority in matters of faith, not Rome. If we understand it against, over against what was happening in the time, we get the intent. For, Luther, for those who were living in Luther's day, this meant controlling dominance of the, the corrupted church was now being subverted. The church's corrupt practices could no longer be sanctioned by the word of God. The whole dodgy idea, the whole dodgy business of indulgences was being undermined. They could ditch the superstition and get back to the good news of Jesus Christ. So Sola Scriptura was good news. The reformers were not against tradition as such. They were not anti-authoritarian. As Luther himself comments, in all other matters, I will yield to any man, but I have neither the power nor the will to deny the word of God. Kevin Van Hooser comments, what Luther protested was not Roman Catholic tradition as such, but the departure from the received tradition. Both Luther and Calvin were very happy to appeal to figures such as Augustine and Irenaeus, not because they had some independent authority or pipeline to revelation, but because they had so faithfully and fully expounded the real intention of the biblical writers. The reformers intended a return to the rule of faith the received tradition of the early church in which Scripture had authority, in which Scripture, not speculation, interpreted Scripture. They never imagined a Bible cut adrift from the faith community. They never intended to sever the Scriptures from the church. They simply looked to claim back the place of Scripture as the primary authority within the community of faith. But, sola scriptura, was hijacked. Sola Scripture was radicalized and it has collected much baggage as it's journeyed its way through the past five centuries. Sola Scriptura had become or has become solo Scriptura. Sola has become solo. The Bible cut adrift from our story. The Bible cut adrift from our heritage. The Bible cut adrift from the community of faith. The Bible alone being used to say all manner of things. The Bible alone co-opted to support ideologies that are completely out of sync with God's love. It looks holy, but it breeds confusion. Again, Van Hooser makes this astute comment. It may seem as though one is espousing a high view of Scripture, But in fact, solo scripture is not biblical. Scripture itself indicates that scriptures are the possession of the church and that the interpretation 
of the scripture belongs to the church as a whole, as a community. And concerning interpretation, he adds, solo scripture leads to an impasse. One cannot arbitrate the conflict of interpretations simply by offering one more individual's opinion about what the Bible means. The church ought not to give much weight to every Tom, Dick, and Harry's opinion as it gives to Nicaea's doctrine of Trinity. Solo scriptura is something altogether different from sola scriptura. The latter affirms that our final authority is scripture alone, but not a scripture that is alone. Ought we reject sola scriptura? No. No, because sola scriptura was then and remains now a necessary corrective to the two extremes of fundamentally, fundamentalist biblicism, that is, a complete literal reading, proof texting galore approach. And it is a necessary corrective to the subjective nonsense, the, well, I don't really agree and it doesn't really feel right, so we don't really need to read it that way. Um, Sola Scriptura counters both of these two extremes. So no, let's not reject Sola Scriptura. Or we reject Solo Scriptura. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do this. Hashtag, let's do this. Ought we reject solo scriptura? Yes. Yes, for we are not simply entitled to claim our own interpretation. We're not simply entitled to claim our own interpretive opinion as God's voice. We are to be an interpretive community, one who takes the revelation of God as it comes to us in Scripture seriously. And we are to take it seriously by seeking to hear it for what it is rather than reducing it through speculation or subjective opinions. We are to do our reading and our wrestling of the sacred text in community with others. We are to listen to the voices of the past. We are, as the Reformers insisted, to allow the whole drama of Scripture, the whole canon of Scripture to inform the reading of the parts. The whole informs the parts, and the pieces are not to be pulled out of context. This is how we will allow Scripture to become, again, the supreme authority in our living. This will guard against developments of ideas such as indulgences from creeping on in. I don't think it's likely that indulgences are going to creep back, although we do have a building project coming up, so you never know. We're thinking of renovating. We might have to change our official position on uh, purgatory. (laughs) We avoid error by listening to the reformers. We avoid it by taking the whole of the canon of text and not just little pieces. We look at the the hard parts in light of the clear parts. We listen to the voices of the past and don't cut ourselves adrift from those voices who have kept us steady through murky waters. Sure, we have the challenge of contextualizing the story of Scripture into our own day and time, but we don't do this in isolation. Sola Scriptura is not each to their own. Read it the way you want. Sola Scriptura is not God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And I realize that tonight I could be 
really, really misunderstood. You may be sitting there thinking, effectively, Donald, you just said, don't read the Bible by yourself. Don't read the Bible for yourself. Um, I just want to say, no way. Uh, That's not what I'm saying. Not what I'm saying at all. Absolutely, we need to eat up the scriptures. They are the words that are life-giving. They are the life-transforming words that we need. And we need to get them deep, deep down into who we are, into the core of our beings and allow them under the power and witness of the Spirit to change us and to make us more like Christ. Absolutely. Let it be heard. Be in the Word. That rhymes really well. Absolutely. Let it be heard. Be in the Word. But why I wanted to take a deeper look at this idea of biblical interpretation of the Bible alone, why I wanted to do that this evening is because I suspect that many, many of us are being blown by the wind. Many of us are being tossed by the waves as we come up against preaching and teaching and opinions that claim to be the Word of God. In this age of information, we are bombarded by ideas that are claimed to be biblical, but leave us deeply confused and deeply troubled. We need these life-giving words. We need the life-affirming words of God. We need to drink, drink deeply of them. Allow them to become, once again, the final say on who we are. We need to drink so deeply that they become the final say on who we individually and we as a community are becoming. In Luther's day, the Bible was held captive by a controlling church. Sola Scriptura was an extremely loud protest against the situation. In our time, the Bible was held by controlling narratives that reduce our confidence in the trustworthiness of God's word. So as we remember the 500th anniversary of Luther's act of courage at that Wittenberg door, let the cry, sola scriptura, be again a loud protest that would set the scriptures free to shape our lives and make us more like Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for that you have um, ultimately revealed who you are in Jesus, that he is the word made flesh, and he dwells among us. And as we look to him, we see the very heart of God. And we as a community, we as a people, desperately want to become more like Jesus. But when we turn to the text, sometimes we come and we are confused. Sometimes we come and we don't know what to make of it. We hear that you're angry. We hear that you hate some of our friends. And yet we hear that you you love. We hear that you reached out and touched lepers.
And so tonight we confess that sometimes we just don't know what to make of what you're saying. But we want to be a community that becomes more and more in tune with who you are. More in tune with your character and your goodness. To reflect you rightly into the world. And as we consider this uh, momentous occasion, we hear again the call to get back to Scripture, get back to the words of life that you have given us, the words that tell our story, the words that give us a narrative to live in. And we ask that you would allow a grace upon us that we would come to that text come to the scriptures and allow them to have their way with us. So would you teach us what it is to be an interpretive community? Would you teach us your ways? And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would, um, you would correct us. You would rein us in when we think we've got it all sorted out and we are going wayward. And where we have ignored scripture and thought that our own ideas shaped by our own desires should rule, we pray that you'd trigger something in our spirits that would let us get back to what you have said. So teach us your ways, O God. Lead us. Let your word be a light and a lamp unto our feet. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.